but we tend to reach a point as Christians in our walks with God where that initial excitement of coming to faith in Jesus and realizing that our sins are forgiven, realizing that we have a relationship with God, that initial excitement starts to wear off a little bit. And we remember the thrill, we remember the newness of, of how it used to be. We remember that, you know, how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed kind of faith. We remember how that once was, and we recognize that we're not there anymore. And, and we don't necessarily have those same emotions that we had to begin with, and, and we can start to get a little bit flaky in our perceptions of God, where we look up at the stars and we say, how could anybody doubt that there's a God? Um, I, I definitely know. I definitely feel it. I, I, I know that there is a God. But then we look at our days and things are chaotic and our months are long and the year's been terrible, and we say, you know, I just don't even know. And so we look back and forth with our emotions, look at the stars, look at our lives, and at one moment we're trusting God, one moment we're, we're denying that he even exists in our minds, and, and we want to recapture that initial faith, we want to recapture that initial freedom from doubt, that initial energy that we had in our walk with Christ, but we, we live in that place where we don't have it. And we tend to go in a couple of different bad ways with the fact that we don't feel the way that we once felt. And one is we continue to entertain those major doubts and because we don't have those feelings anymore, we start to really wonder whether this whole God thing was true. And we start to rethink the way that we came to faith in Christ. And we say, you know, back then I was a kid. I was worn out at youth camp. I was in the woods. I was in a different environment. All of these emotions were flying. And yeah, I, I, I felt like there was a God then, but now I really don't. And so we kind of settle into this new atheism. Where, yeah, at one point I thought there was a God, but now, now I don't. And sometimes we don't even say that. Sometimes our atheism is good Christian atheism, where we're going to church, putting money in the offerings, doing the things that we're supposed to do, but living almost like God isn't real. Living like he's inconsequential, living a good, clean life that looks very Christian. We would never deny him with our lips, but our hearts end up being pretty far from him. So we settle into that place of, of atheism because we don't feel what we used to feel. Or on the flip side, we say, you know, I don't feel what I used to feel, and I know that that's not right, so now I'm going to work at recapturing that initial feeling. And so we become people who are always looking for that spiritual buzz that we had when we first came to faith in Jesus. We're looking for that adrenaline shot. We're looking for all that energy. And so we shop around for an over-the-top worship experience, and we're always looking for the next new thing to give us that feeling again. So we look for the new author or the new worship band or the new church or the new pastor. We look for all these things that can maybe finally, this will help me recapture that initial love. But the search for that buzz usually just ends up leaving us in the same place that we were to begin with, where we still feel empty, maybe get renewed for a couple of months, but then we're just back down to the normal, you know, searching for the next spiritual high, but never really having it. Now, what I'm going to call us today is not to run away from emotions and feelings. I think when we believe something really big, the things that we as Christians claim to believe about God, we should feel that. There should be an internal response to that, and our emotions should correspond to the weight of the things that we believe. When the Bible describes the way we react to God, it calls us to tremble. It calls us to have joy. It calls us to have loud singing. So there's supposed to be emotions that go with the truths that we believe, but feelings aren't found by running after them. We don't feel what we want to feel by trying to feel something. We feel what we should be feeling when our feet are put on something solid, when we believe something. You know, as Christians, we should feel the weight of, we believe, of what we believe, but we never should have been the people who trusted in our feelings to determine God's existence or the truth of what we believe to begin with. 
we should realize that our relationship with God isn't primarily about a spiritual energy or about some glow that we carry around, but it's belief in some rock-solid truths. Truths about God's active work in his creation today, and then more than that, the truth about his cross. How, how God is a God who sent his son to come and live a perfect life, die on the cross for us as an objective historical event, and because of that, we know that we're loved by God. We know that our sins are forgiven, not because of some feeling that we have in response. And this, uh, I feel like I have this conversation pretty often with people where people say, man, I just don't feel like God's close to me anymore. I just don't feel like I love him anymore. You know, I, I had that experience back then, but I don't have it now. And this is why I really love this book of Proverbs because it calls us to uh, wisdom for life. It calls us to see as spiritual, not just this buzz that we experience, but it says, you want to know what is spiritual? Working your job for God's glory, raising your kids for God's glory, loving your wife, paying your bills. This book of Proverbs is loaded with all these truths that God is not removed from any of these things, but he's in all these things. And it's a book of common sense. You know, he says, if you're proud, you'll fall. If you commit adultery, it'll wreck your life. It's a book about sowing and reaping, where in the New Testament, God says, whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. And Proverbs just shows how that works. So it's a very common sense, real-life book that says that God is in all of those things. But also, it's not a book that's atheistic. It's not a book that just throws God to the side. This is a book that actually gives us theology. It's a book that says that God is alive and he's active in his creation. And as much as we should know that he's in the mundane, he's in the day-to-day, and we shouldn't feel like there's something going wrong because we're getting up, paying our bills, doing our thing— at the same time, we need to recognize that there is a God who, who is alive and powerful. He's dealing with us intimately, and he's relating to his creation in all kinds of different ways. Um, so, so the right reaction to, to the fact that we don't have those feelings anymore isn't necessarily to run after those feelings. It's to run after faith in the rock-solid truth of the cross of Jesus and his active work in the world today. In fact, when this book talks about wisdom, it says that we really aren't wise if we just look at the world and all we see is the world. To really be wise, we have to see God's active hand in it. Listen to Proverbs 1.7. He says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So he says real wisdom has to begin with God, with the fear of God, with that trembling reverence and respect for him and this understanding that he's God and we're his creation. You know, there's this temptation sometimes when you start to learn how to live in the world, especially if your career's going well, your job's going well, you know, the money's coming in, the bills are being paid, family's going well. When, when you start to learn how to manage the creation around you pretty well, there's a temptation to start to think that God's not really part of this whole thing. There's temptation to start to think that, that I'm God, that I'm the one who's steering things, I'm the one who's controlling things, I know how to make things go well, But the author of Proverbs here says that that is absolute foolishness. If we start in that place where we think that we're the rulers of creation, we miss out on what creation's all about. We we can't lose uh, sight of the fact that we are derivative beings. We are not the ultimate being. Can't lose sight of the fact that we were created to be in the image and likeness of God, to reflect someone who's infinite and, and far greater than we are. We can't convince ourselves that we're the greatest ones. He says that we're fools if we don't recognize that we need his sustaining work to keep going. We need him to be active in the world around us, and we have to be depending on him and trusting in him. This God of Proverbs is not a God who just set everything into motion and walked away. 
not like he just put some batteries in the creation, pressed the power button, and then left and just allowed it to run its course. The God of Proverbs is a God who's intimately involved in his creation. This is the idea that the Bible calls provident, or that we call providence. And providence is this idea that God hasn't just wound it up and walked away. God is intimately involved in caring for everything, preserving everything, governing the world so that it fulfills his intended purposes. He's still very much here, and he's still very active. And this is whether we can feel him or not. You know, the source of those feelings and and that, that sense of God's goodness to us really isn't from pursuing after a feeling and a spiritual high. The source of those feelings is from that rock solid belief that he is, that he's good, that he died for us, and that he's active in the world around us today. So, we're going to look at some of the ways that Proverbs says that he's still very much active today, some of the things that he's doing in his world today, that he hasn't left us, and that he's still doing some things to hold everything together. And the first is that he's watching. Now, this is a big difference between the God of Christianity and many other gods. Deism says that God is totally uninterested in creation, and he may not even be aware of it. He's just so far above us, he got everything moving and then walked away, and so he may not even know that there are people around any more than we could know that there are dust mites around us on the coffee table. You know, it's not that big a deal. We're so far above them, why would we pay any attention to them? And so deism says God's far above us, he wouldn't pay any attention to us, we're just the dust mites, so he must just walk away and pay no attention to us. Pantheism says that everything is God, and so he's not really conscious, and so, so there isn't this watching and this care, but the God of the Bible is a God who's watching and seeing everything. Listen to Proverbs 5.21. For man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. So he says that God is watching our paths and thinking about them. Now, now this doesn't mean that he's giving a a small fraction of his attention to all of us at the same time. This means that God, because he's God and is able to think about everything at the same time, is giving 100% attention to all of us all the time, which we can't do. You know, I know if I try to multitask, I don't get anything done. There was a day this week, I think I had 10 windows open on my computer. In one window, I was sending an email. The next window, I was on Facebook, and I had a half-written message there. Next window, there was the Bible window. The next window was the window where I was writing the sermon. And then a whole other browser so I could send email from another address. And I'm just sitting there doing, getting nothing done. Because I've got all these windows open, and I've got this fraction of my attention in all these different places. I just can't multitask like that. But God isn't subject to that same limitation. He can pay 100% attention to all of us, to all that we do, all the time. And not only is he paying attention to what we're doing on the outside, but he knows our hearts. Listen to Proverbs 15, 11. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man? Proverbs 21, 2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. So God not only sees what we do, but he knows what we think. He knows the motives behind what we do. So even those great deeds that we do that are just deeds of love and service that we know that we're doing for selfish motives, God sees that, he weighs that, and he knows that. And this is why the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, because there should be some trembling that comes with the knowledge that he sees me and he sees the stuff that I don't even see. I know, I just, um, I fly a couple times a year, and I'm still not comfortable going through airport security. Um, my father-in-law, every year at Christmas, gives me dozens of pocket knives 
for, for Christmas presents, like where I'll pour out the stocking at his house, and it's just pocket knives. And, and so I have hundreds of pocket knives all around my house, and I go through pocket knives at a rate of about one per decade. So it's not like I'm burning up pocket knives or anything like that, but they're all over the place. So if you ever need one, they're, they're somewhere around you in the house. And so I'll be going through airport security, and no matter how many times I checked and rechecked the bags, I'm still thinking, something could have slipped underneath the liner of my carry-on. Uh, how do I know a knife wasn't in there? Or that little pocket inside your pocket that's not really used for anything? I'm going through the scanner, and I'm going, oh, no, I didn't check that. There's this feeling that here are these people who can, can scan and see parts of me that I could never see. They're going to be able to see this knife that could be there. There's this, this strange wave of fear that comes over me when I go through there because there might be something that I didn't even know about that was there. If that creates just a little bit of trembling, how much more the fact that God can see and know our hearts. He can see and know everything, every thought, every motive, and how much should that expose the folly of thinking that maybe I could please God on my own? Thinking maybe if I do enough good things, God will like me. Maybe if I jump through enough, hoop, enough hoops, he'll say, excellent, well done, you finally did it. There's no way I could. And this is why as Christians, it's so encouraging to believe the gospel. You know, we, we think, oh, I've got to do things to get God to like me, but then when we know that he searches our hearts and he weighs our hearts, we know there's no way he would like us, so we believe that even though we're more sinful than we could ever imagine, even though he sees stuff on his scanner that we could never see, because of the cross of Jesus, because of his love for us and his death for us, even that stuff that we couldn't see was cleansed, was purified, so he can look at us and see us through the righteousness of his son and say to us, well done. When Proverbs is describing God, it's not describing a God who, who wound everything up and walked away, but a God who's looking and searching and paying 100% attention to us all the time. But he's not just observing like a video camera. He's not just taking in information and storing it in a file cabinet and someday he'll come back and intervene in his creation again. Proverbs describes God as actually directing his physical creation. He's not the God of deism that walked away. He's not a God of Greek mythology that was pretty uninterested in things. Proverbs 21.1, it says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So it's not just saying that, uh, that God can see a king's heart. Proverbs says that God is directing the king's heart. He's turning it like a stream of water to accomplish his purposes. You know, sometimes rulers in the world can think, you know, I'm... I'm pretty much God. I'm the most powerful man in the world. I'm the one who controls armies and nations. And because of me, people rise and fall. I'm this kingmaker. And God says, no, actually, what goes on in your heart is steered by me. Now, this doesn't mean that everything that a ruler does is right. I mean, all through Proverbs, God's commanding rulers to not be wicked. Proverbs 16:12 says, it's an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. So God's calling rulers not to be evil, calling them to be good all throughout the book of Proverbs, but even when they're not, God's steering what they do. And you see this when Jesus is crucified. I mean, here are these rulers who are standing up and they're trying Jesus. They're putting him on trial. He's not speaking. They're, it's a false trial. They accuse him and they, they determine that he's guilty. And then they send him to the cross, which was an evil thing. Those are rulers being a total abomination to God. They crucify him, and it all goes exactly according to God's plan. So here's God steering the hearts of kings. Even the evil decisions they make 
to accomplish his purposes in the world. And I know that there are difficulties with this idea and there are paradoxes. People argue about this human, responsibil- uh, human responsibility versus God's sovereignty thing, and they've been arguing about it for 2,000 years. Um, but I think the way that the scriptures teach it is that we make decisions that we're 100% responsible for, and God makes those same decisions. And I don't get it either. Like it says this, listen to Proverbs 16.1. It says, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. So you say, okay, I made this free to, totally free choice to say this thing, and it seems like Proverbs says, yeah, you did, and God was in control of it. So he's in control, and I make decisions. Yeah. Okay, so you're saying that he's in control of the big picture. Like, we're all on the deck of the cruise ship, and he's going to get the cruise ship where it's going, but on the deck, we make our own decisions and do our own thing. No, I think Proverbs says he's in control of the cruise ship, and he's in control of the decisions we're making on the deck, and we're responsible for him. So, in case you have a headache, we'll move on. But uh, I don't get it either. I don't, I don't understand. But I think that both are taught by Scripture, that he's in control, he's guiding things, he's structuring things so that they go according to his purposes, but then we're also free and responsible. Uh, also, Proverbs says that he's guiding even what we would call random occurrences. Listen to this, Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So casting a lot, basically the equivalent of a coin flip, It says the outcome is from God. So when you flip that coin, God determined that it would be heads. Now we have to be real careful with this. The fact that he determined that it would be heads doesn't mean that he told us what that means. And this is, this is a, big, uh, a big problem in a lot of Christians' lives. Like, we'll say, okay, I believe this verse. When I flip a coin, God determines the outcome. That's absolutely true. So God, there are these two different girls that I'm thinking about marrying. Uh, heads, girl A. Tails, girl B. So here we go. Tails. Okay, girl B, God told me that. Well, no. No, he didn't sign up for your conditions. (laughs) He didn't sign up and say, okay, I'm going to speak to you through these random occurrences. The Bible does say he determined heads or tails, but how do you know that he wasn't saying that tails meant girl A? He didn't sign up for those same conditions that we put him through, and so we are not supposed to use random occurrences as our way of hearing from God and having him speak to us. You know, this does, the fact that he controls everything doesn't make all of nature like a Christian Ouija board where, uh, where God is speaking to us through all these, these crazy things that are happening. God, I'm going to throw this rock, and if it bounces twice on the water, then I'm going to take this job. If it bounces once, this other job, that's you speaking to me. He didn't sign up for those conditions, but he does determine how many times that rock's going to bounce. And Jesus said a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground and die without God controlling it. Uh, he, he has all the hairs on our heads numbered. He's in control of everything, but he doesn't always speak through everything to tell us what we're supposed to do. You say, but doesn't God promise that he'll direct our steps? He does. Listen to Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. So he says what we're supposed to do is trust God, acknowledge God, and he'll make our paths straight. It doesn't promise that, promise that if we trust God and acknowledge God, that he'll tell us ahead of time everything that we should do. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, so we won't get into it too much. But as Christians, we can be very much paralyzed by the fact that we're not hearing specifically from God what we should do on a decision that's not spelled out word for word in the Scripture. You know, the, the person to marry, the college to go to, the job to take, the church to join. We have all these decisions that are all in front of us, and there are a couple decisions that could be perfectly good, and we just say, well, I'm just going to wait for God to speak. 
And we can wait and be paralyzed for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, waiting for him to speak, and he doesn't necessarily speak and tell us which way to go, and we say, well, he's not directing my paths. No, the way he directs our paths is we trust him, we acknowledge him, we pray, we wait for a while, get wise counsel, listen to the scriptures, and then we make decisions. And then as we make those decisions, he does direct our paths. And they don't go the same place that we thought they would go. I know my life didn't go anywhere near in the same direction that I thought it would go when I was a teenager in high school. When I was graduating from high school, I was moving to Rochester to go to RIT. I was going to be a computer engineer. I thought I knew who I was going to marry. I thought I was going to get my degree, probably move back to Orchard Park, uh, work a decent engineering job, teach Sunday school at my church, just sort of be this faithful Christian. And along the way, God directed my paths in different ways, very few times with a really clear leading ahead of time that I should go and do, the, do this thing or make this decision. But as I trusted him and walked with him and got up and read the scriptures every day and got wise counsel and made decisions, he did direct those paths. And it went better than I ever could have wanted it to go. It went better than I ever would have expected it to go. But he, it, but he didn't tell me ahead of time, this is how it's going. Uh, he, he didn't send me to RIT at 18 and say, the reason you're going to study computer engineering is so you can plan a church. But it did work out that way. He, and nothing transfers, by the way, from computer engineering major to pastoral studies. So it was a wasted year. But nothing, nothing really, nothing's wasted. God directs everything. He makes it work. He just doesn't tell us ahead of time. And by the way, this truth is supposed to reassure us so that we can make decisions. But fairly often, we allow it to paralyze us. You know, it should reassure us that, man, I don't know which way to go, A, B, or C. But I'm trusting God. I'm praying. I'm seeking wise counsel. I, I've weighed everything out. And now I'm going to make a decision because the Bible says if I trust in God, he'll direct my paths. We usually agonize and say, I'm trusting in God, and he's not telling me ahead of time what I'm supposed to do, and we feel like we can't make any decisions. So it just all weighs on us and twists us, and we just wrestle all the time, and we just can't move. This is supposed to reassure us that God's going to direct us and guide us and bless us, and we don't have to worry that we're missing some hidden will of God on an issue that's clearly not moral. So he, he directs, he guides, and we're supposed to trust him and just trust in the real hand of providence to lead things where they need to go to get us into the right place. And, you know, sometimes one of the ways that he directs us is by correcting us along the way. Listen to Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. He says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So when Proverbs is talking about circumstances around us, he doesn't say that they're just random. Now, I know that there's the danger of reading too much into our circumstances. You know, you're driving down the road and you get a flat tire and you immediately start to assume God must be disciplining me for something. No, he might just be saying it's time to get a new tire. Um, You know, there may not be some major spiritual discipline in your life, but there's also the danger of not paying any attention to what God might be doing through our circumstances. You know, imagine you spend five years of your life absolutely obsessing over getting this new convertible. And you just have to have it. You're not happy until you have it. You'll do anything you can to have it. So for years, you're saving and you're cutting important things that you should be doing and you're throwing it all into the convertible fund. And then you go to the dealership and you go a little bit farther than you wanted to go on the debt for that. So you're probably going to be spending some extra years paying that off. You go in there, and this convertible that you obsessed over for five years and now you're going to be a slave to for the next 10 years, you finally have it. You're driving out of the dealership, you're feeling good about it, you park it at the mall, you go inside, you come out, and somebody's keyed the thing all along the side. It would be wise to say, God, are you telling me something about what was wrong in my heart? 
Are you disciplining me? Because the Bible does say that he does discipline. First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, he says, We don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So sometimes God sends stuff into our lives to shake us so that we don't grip those other things that we were gripping that had become idols to us. We're really good at holding on to some things really tightly and saying, I have to have this thing. And we won't let go of that thing. And, and so God will come along and shake us until finally we do let go of it. And that's always for our good. We've got these, these little idols we build. We, we build our security in all kinds of places. But sometimes it's good when we see God shaking our lives to ask, is he trying to shake me free from something? Is there th- something I'm trusting in? Something that's become a God to me? Because he's good at disciplining and correcting us to keep us on target. And again, it's always for our good. We never have to worry that there's some target on us and he's always out to destroy us or we feel like there's something in our life and so he, he must be out there, like he's got this cosmic laser that's just going to shoot down on us someday. As Christians, we don't need to think that way. God's no more out to destroy us than a parent is out to destroy their kids when they discipline their kids. God's out to correct us, to keep us on track, to keep us walking with him. And part of his providence, part of his arranging circumstances circumstances in his creation is correcting us to keep us on track and also with that he protects us listen to proverbs 3 25 and 26 he says do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes for the lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught so this passage is saying that god protects us so that we don't need to be afraid of anything ultimate Now, I know Proverbs says that we should be wise. We should see danger coming, and we should um, do what we need to do to hide ourselves from danger. And so it's good to do things like save some money, good to do some things like avoid very clear dangers. But at the same time, there are an awful lot of Christians who have the tinfoil hat, the sky is falling, I'm afraid of everything, society's about to collapse, I'm getting the bomb shelter, and I'm loading it up with a year's supply of banana chips and potable water, and I'm doing all that because I know where all this is going, and you talk to them, and And it's not, I'm trusting in Jesus. It's, well, you know what they're doing to the currency? And and freaking out about everything. That shouldn't be who we are. We should be people who understand that dangers are out there, but also recognize that there is no circumstance coming in our future where God won't be there. Now, he doesn't say that this sudden destruction won't come. He says there are going to be some pretty big surprises. There is destruction that comes. There are horrible things that come into our lives, and they come in as a huge surprise. But he says, regardless of what we go through, God will protect us. He'll take care of us. He, he, he won't allow us to ultimately be destroyed. Now, does he ever allow Christians to die when sudden ruin comes? I mean, were there Christians there when the tsunami came through? I'm sure there were. And did they drown, or did they have some magical bubble around them where, look, God's protecting me? No, some of them drowned. But as Christians, we don't believe that even death is ultimate. We believe that Jesus has conquered death, that 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 final enemy is destroyed, that there's going to be a resurrection. And so regardless of what we go through in the future, even if it's our own death, he won't allow us to be ultimately destroyed. So while we can save for real contingencies that could be coming our way, we don't need to be fearful. We don't need to be paranoid about that sudden ruin that can come. He says, yeah, it'll come, 
but he cares and he's there for us. Not only that, but he's actively involved in his creation, listening to the prayers of his people. Listen to Proverbs 15, 29. It says, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. I don't know about you, but this is a struggle for me to believe sometimes. Because I don't see God and I don't feel God hearing prayer. I don't know what it feels like for him to hear my prayer. But as a Christian, I'm supposed to believe what the scripture says, and that's that he does hear prayer. And you say, but I could never qualify for this verse. He hears the prayer of the righteous. This is the God who knows my heart. I mean, if he's just looking for somebody righteous, scanning everybody, we're all guilty. There's no way he's hearing any of our prayers. But this is important for us to believe the gospel, because if you remember, when Jesus went to the garden, when he went to Gethsemane, here's Jesus, the only righteous one ever. He kneels down to pray, and it's like his God's not there. He gets up on the cross, and the prayers that Jesus is praying out are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying things really that wicked people should say. He's like, God, it's like you're far from me. It's like you've forsaken me. It's like you've turned your back on me. And the Bible does say he will turn his back on the wicked. So why was Jesus in that place? Well, the answer is he was taking all of our wickedness on himself. The Bible says he became sin for us who knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So up on that cross, he took our place. All of the wickedness that convinces us that I couldn't possibly pray and have God hear me was all taken on the back of Jesus Christ. He died for all of that, and his righteousness as Christians was credited to our account. So we're forgiven, we're cleansed, God looks at us as Christians and says, you're righteous, and he hears our prayers. I think we don't pray because we don't believe this, because we don't believe the gospel. We don't believe that he's washed our sins away and that he accepts us and loves us because of what Jesus does. We think that we have to jump through certain hoops, and because we know he sees our heart, we know we haven't jumped through those hoops, and we think he'd never listen. But he's a God who's intimately involved and does listen and hears the prayers of his righteous. So he protects us, and next he provides. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-five says, A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. You got a King James that says the one who trusts in God will be made fat. Amen. Um, that's, a, that's a good verse. Uh, it's going to make me King James only, but um, <laughs> Pat LaBarber's chair. But <laughs> it, it's good. It is, it's good to recognize that God provides for us, that God takes care of us, and that if we trust in him, he'll provide the things that we need. You know, a lot of times, uh, especially, you know, you're, you're working your job, you're providing your family, and you feel like you're barely making ends meet now, but man, what's going to happen if I lose my job? And they're always talking layoffs, and, and what's going to happen if the economy goes down again? And we start to tie our emotional state to jobs reports and the whispers of the bosses, and you see a couple bosses whispering in the corner, and you start to get anxious because you're thinking, man, this is, is this it? Are pink slips coming next? And you have these ups and downs, this wild roller coaster ride, because your whole providing for your family is all determined by how things go at work. Well, according to this passage, ultimately, God provides for us. Now, we should work hard, and we've said that. We shouldn't be lazy, and if we are lazy, there is a pretty good chance that that kind of calamity is going to come upon us. But ultimately, the reason that I know that my family is going to be okay, the reason I know I'm going to be provided for is because God provides. Because he ultimately is the one who's in control of job markets and layoffs. He knows what he's doing, and he's good. And we need to work very hard, but also we need to trust him. We need to trust that his hand of providence is active in the world, providing the things that we need, and he knows what we need better than we do. 
know, he doesn't only provide for us financially. Look at Proverbs 19.14. It says, House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. I know sometimes uh, single people need to hear this. I remember the pressure. Uh, I went to Christian college freshman year. It was like this game of spousal musical chairs where uh, like we, you got on campus and it was like someone started the music and said, go, and everybody just started pairing off. And so, so I remember like standing there at the end of freshman year without a chair. Like, what just happened? I, everybody's like married all of a sudden and, and I don't know who it's going to be. And I remember that those waves of fear that would come over, like maybe I'm never going to be married. The music just stopped, and, and it seems like everybody's connected with someone, and not seeing anybody out there, and not knowing how this is going to happen. Now, I believe that we should look for a godly spouse. You know, as guys, the fact that God is providing a spouse for us doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask her out on a date. That's the worst kind of guy in the world who says, yeah, I would ask you out, but I'm just waiting for God to provide. Well, he provides through you asking her out. Like, go, go for it, buddy. Like, it's, we, we should ask. We should take initiative. We should, should make some of those moves, but also we should understand that God is the one who does that providing, and so we don't have to be fearful. Which means if, if you're single, there's a really good chance you're going to get married. He'll provide. He'll open your eyes to the right person at the right time. He'll, 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 he'll make sure that that happens. So you don't have to have that fear. And, and by the way, if he decides not to get you married, if you're in that, that small percentage of people that never do get married, that's better for you too. Like God always works everything out for our good. If we love him, we're called according to his purpose. He's got a plan even in that. And we're complete even without a spouse. But as Christians, we should just have that, that confidence that God will provide and God will provide in his time. He provides money, provides jobs, he provides spouses. And also this next thing, he really does provide justice. Look at Proverbs 23, 10 and 11. He says, do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless for their redeemer is strong and he will plead their cause against you. Now this verse, don't move an ancient landmark. A lot of people will use that verse to say that the Bible says we're not supposed to change things. Um, we're supposed to leave things the way that they've always been. Um, I hear this in churches a lot. Uh, sometimes I want to say this to my wife, like when she says I'm supposed to repaint a room. Um, and I, hey, I'm, I'm quoting this. No, I'm not moving the ancient landmark, honey. I'm just being proverbial here. Um, this, is, this is what we're doing. Um, but that's not what it's saying. This is not a proverb that says don't change anything. This is a proverb that says don't steal. Uh, these ancient landmarks were landmarks. They marked the land. They marked off where one guy's field ended and another guy's field started. So imagine, and he's describing being next to the field of the fatherless. Imagine your field's doing well, you're working hard, you'd like to expand, you'd like to put in this new crop, but you need another 50 feet of land. You look next door and here's this guy, doesn't look like he's working very hard, he's not using his land. So how about I go out at night, and he lives far enough away on this field that he won't necessarily notice, I go out at night and just move that fence 50 feet. I might be able to get away with that. But he says we shouldn't just be asking what we can get away with humanly. We should understand that there's a God who's watching and does bring justice and will plead that cause against us. There's this, this redeemer up there who makes sure that in the end, eventually, justice happens. Now, if we believe that, then we become people who don't have to take vengeance on people who've wronged us. Listen to Proverbs 20, verse 22. He says, do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. I know that feeling where, where somebody wrongs you and it's just so wrong and you're just so mad and you want to pay them back, you want to get vengeance. What Proverbs says is don't. 
It says, no, just love him and God will deliver you. God is the one who does bring that justice in the end. He's the one who makes everything get exposed eventually. As Christians, we believe that even if things don't sort out in this life, which pretty often they do, even if they don't get sorted out in this life, there is coming a judgment day when all of those deeds are being brought to light. And God will be a better judge than we ever could. God will repay evil better than we ever could. And so we should be people who are totally free from the desire for any kind of vengeance, to get any kind of justice on our enemies, because God is the one who takes care of that. So God isn't a God who's left. He's a God who's active. It's true we don't feel that all the time, but as Christians, we're supposed to know that and believe that. And when we have our belief in those truths renewed, that's where the feelings come from. That's where the passion comes from. That's where the ability to sing the loud songs and shout with joy and tremble and shake. All of those things come from what we know and what we believe, what we've got our feet on. Those things don't come from just running after a feeling. You know, ultimately, as Christians, we should see that all of God's hand of providence and creation really all consummates on his cross. You know, at the cross of Jesus, we see God directing all of history to bring the Son of God to be crucified, just like he said he would hundreds of years before through the mouths of the prophets. Just like he had promised he would to Adam and Eve way back in the garden, and he said, there's this Savior who's going to come, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. God had promised that that was coming. He had promised that that was going to happen. And because God guides and directs all of his creation, it happened to the day when he said it would happen, just like he said it would. On that cross, he showed that he provides, because he provided for our biggest need. You know, everybody around expected Jesus to provide for what they thought the biggest need was, which was political freedom. You know, here are these Romans, they're ruling over us. We don't like them, we want to get them out of here. So here comes Jesus riding in on his donkey, and they're celebrating, they're they're shouting, save us now. He comes in, and he's about to provide for the biggest need they have, and he dies for them on the cross. Which to all those people look like foolishness. Not what kings do. Kings rule, they reign. They assert their power. We should be kicking out Rome here. That's what should be happening. But Jesus looks at us, knows our hearts, and says, you have a bigger need. Your bigger need is, is that you've got an enemy of Satan. You've got your sin. You've got death looming over. You've got hell looming over you, and that's not paid for. So on the cross, in his providence, he provided for us. On the cross, he showed his love for us, so we don't need to doubt it. You know, pretty often we get in those places where we say, I just don't feel God's love anymore. And I understand that, and I understand that that's not a good place to be. But as a Christian, I'm supposed to be someone who stands on God's love, who can say, I don't necessarily feel it like I should right now, but I look back to that cross, and that proves it beyond a shadow of a doubt. So if you're wondering, how do I know that God loves me? The answer is not going to be to look into your heart and find some answer there. The answer is going to be to look at God's hand in history. Look what he did on the cross. Look how he gave his life for you. And that's where the doubts go away. They don't go away by generating some kind of buzz in our hearts. So Christians, we're called to trust. Proverbs 16, 20 says, Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. We don't always feel it. We don't always believe it when we look at the chaos in our lives, but we're supposed to trust. And if we do that, we're blessed. That's how we get off the roller coaster of of trusting in our jobs to provide. 
That's how we get off that roller coaster of trying to get vengeance on our enemies and, and making sure that they're in their right place. We can get off that roller coaster just by trusting in Christ, and that's where the happiness is, that's where the joy is, and that's where the emotions flow from. Uh, for now, let's just bow our heads and close our eyes for a minute, please. Well, Christians, we should really um, spend time, anytime we hear, hear from the word, confessing our sin to God. Confessing the ways that we haven't trusted him like we should. Confessing the ways we, we've run after an emotion rather than running after Jesus and having the emotions flow from that. Confess the ways that we haven't really believed in his cross and we haven't believed in his providence. And because we haven't believed, all kinds of bad fruit has resulted in our lives. So take the next just few seconds and confess those things to God. Confess that real darkness that's there. Confess the ways that you don't feel what you should feel. And confess the ways you've run after it in all the wrong places. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you don't have a relationship with God, I just want you to hear the greatest news you could ever hear. And that's that even though God sees you, even though he knows everything about you, even the stuff you don't know, he's provided a way for you to be cleansed and forgiven, to be provided for now and through all eternity. And that way is not for you to become religious and join the church. It's not for you to try to clean up your life and do all kinds of good things. That way he provided is what we call the gospel. And that's the message that Jesus Christ, who's all God and all man, came to this earth. He died on the cross. He was buried and he rose again. So that the Bible says, whoever trusts in him won't perish but have everlasting life. So if you're here and you recognize that you've sinned, you recognize that you fall short of his glory, you recognize your need of the gospel. You recognize your need of a savior, someone to come and rescue you. Don't try to fix it on your own. Trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf. Turn from sin. Turn from unbelief. Just cry out to him for a rescue. And he promises that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Calling on the name of the Lord is not about mouthing the words of a specific prayer, but genuinely in your heart, turning from sin, turning from unbelief, and crying out, God, save me, forgive me. I know you died for me. And he promises that if that's where you are in your heart now, then he will save you. He will forgive you. And because I believe in God's directing everything, I have to say that everybody who's here is here for a reason. we're here so that we can trust Jesus, so that we can worship him. And I think there are people here today so you can find Jesus. So I'd encourage you to, to trust in him today, trust in his goodness, trust in his cross, trust in his providence. Allow that to renew the emotions, renew the feelings. And as we stand up to worship and sing, sing with all the emotion that you've got, not because you're trying to conjure him up or work something up, but because your feet are on something solid, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that you didn't leave this place. God, your hand is actively at work all around us. 
Lord, we confess our unbelief. I just pray that you'd renew our faith in you and our trust in you this morning. Renew our faith that you are active in our lives. Renew our trust in your providence. And Lord, let us be people who, when we see the world, don't see a world that's operating without you present. But help us be people who see your hand in in what's going on in this world. Lord, there will often be times that things come up that look very random and we don't know what you're doing with them. We don't know if you're saying anything with them. But God, I pray that even in those circumstances, we would trust you and trust in your promise that you will provide, protect, guide, and and move our paths where they're supposed to be. Father, we need you. We need you to spark that faith in our hearts. So we ask that you would do it and help us now to worship you in response. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Let's all stand and worship.